Again, a warning. This week's opening is pieced together from war correspondent Martha Gellhorn's experiences in World War II. She saw much of the hell that was World War II and didn't hesitate to report its graphic reality to us. This week's opening includes some of what she saw when she entered Dachau concentration camp with U.S. troops. If you wish to skip it, the main episode begins at 3 minutes 50 seconds. No less than General Eisenhower himself had guaranteed that both women and men correspondents would be treated the same. Yet when it came to the biggest day of the war, who's allowed to go onto the beaches of Normandy? That's right, only men. So you think I'm going to take that shit sitting down? Yep, that's exactly what I did. I snuck onto a Red Cross ship. I walked into the head, walked into a stall, locked the door and sat down. Stayed there, too, until the ship was at the Normandy beach. It's okay. I had my flask of whiskey to keep me company during the lonely hours. What did I see when I was there? It's hard to tell you about the casualties. There were so many of them. It's true, I came to write about them, but as the wounded came rolling in, I put down my pen and just started to help. How could one justify not helping when there was so much to do? This is never easy, even when one has seen war firsthand before. The wounded, so brave and so young, kept coming and coming. For some of them, this was the first time they saw action. Just an hour or two of combat that would leave some of them, perhaps without an arm or a leg, for the rest of their life. So what can you do? Sometimes you just light the cigarettes and hold them for the young G.I.s because they can't use their hands. Sometimes you cut off their boots bring water, or hold plasma. I can remember pouring coffee from a pot into a G.I.'s mouth as he had no other way of drinking it. You can't understand how exceptional these young men were until you see them joking while they work just to hold on to life. Men who needed attention desperately themselves pointing out a brother in arms across the way that needed it more. And everyone wanting to know if anyone had information about fellow squad members. That was my first day of the war on the European mainland. There was so much carnage and horror. How could someone picture something even worse? Yet I did experience worse horror on the last day of the war. That was the day I entered Dachau. I didn't need to worry about being objective in writing about Dachau. All I did was to report the complete and absolute horror that existed in the camp. Those prisoners who could march had been evacuated by the SS to Tegernsee, located further south. The ones who could not maintain the pace or fell behind were simply shot. Those who remained in Dachau were unbelievably emaciated. It's surprising when you see how emaciated a human body can be and still cling to life. This was far from the last horror to be discovered there. There were several dozen train cars loaded with rotting corpses. We saw four very sizable ovens used to incinerate the corpses of those who were slain there or had died of overwork or disease. We were shocked to find even more. We also found the operating rooms where the Nazis used prisoners as human test subjects in inhuman experiments. One doesn't have to vilify an enemy who would do such things. Facts like these speak for themselves.
Welcome to Nearest Film, Episode 32, When One World War Isn't Enough. In the minds of many, Martha Gellhorn was one of the best war correspondents ever. Our opening remembrance from her is fictionalized, but she was there, from sneaking her way onto a hospital ship to joining the army at the liberation of Dachau. She was always where the action was. If one wants to find out what life was like in World War II, one can do worse than reading the dispatches of Martha Gellhorn. So at least 620 to as many as 750,000 Americans died in the Civil War, depending on who you talk to. By far the most of any armed conflict in American history. I've seen estimates of between 53,000 and 116,000 died in World War I. We kind of breezed past the Civil War and skipped World War I completely. If this were a podcast on American history, or even Western civilization, we'd definitely be covering these. But that's not our purpose. There's a lot of battles and wars you'd need to know about if you want to understand the major turning points in Western history. The Battle of Actium, Battle of Milvian Bridge, Mehmed II's Siege of Constantinople, the Seven Years' War, the Battle of Waterloo, America's War of Independence, and the Battle of Yorktown are just a few of the wars and actions that have shaped the Western world we know. Though each of these has had a great influence on the Western world, a deeper knowledge of these wars won't give us great insight on why we're in our current climate malaise. Remember that countries are systems. They have, among other things, economies and belief systems that are always searching for equilibrium. And don't forget that economies are, to a greater or lesser degree, open systems depending on trade policies and how high tariffs are set. Capitalist economies fluctuate between periods of growth and recession. But in a country with a well-regulated capitalist economy, the swings between growth and recession are, hopefully, not too extreme. The thinking has always been, that a capitalist economy, over the long run, should have a certain amount of growth associated with it, though people don't always agree on how much that should be. Of course, an economy the size of the U.S. economy is vastly complex, with sub-economies like technology, construction, automobile, and service sectors, and so on, that may or may not be growing or contracting at similar rates. America had struggled with its economy since the stock market crash of 1929 and subsequent Great Depression. Although the economy was struggling upward ever so slowly, it was far from recovered. There was still double-digit unemployment when World War II broke out. A country typically widely shares some kind of belief system. Americans at the time overwhelmingly had a belief in our Constitution, in the rule of law, and in our justice system. At least, that is, if you were white. Getting us to our next point. Belief systems, like economies, have subsystems. That is, groups who believe in competing systems of thought. Though most Americans believed in God, there were atheists too, as well as different religions and different variations within these systems of thought. Christians were divided between Catholics and Protestants, and Protestants were divided between a wide number of denominations. With regard to foreign relations, a majority of Americans were in accord with the original America Firsters, 
that is, the pre-World War I movement that strongly opposed getting involved in what they saw as a European conflict. Using the slogan, America First, long before the moniker was picked up and recycled by Donald Trump. When Hitler invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, Norway on April 9, 1940, France entering Paris on June 14, 1940, and attacked England in the Battle of Britain from July through October 1940, America sat by and remained neutral. Finally, as America saw how badly things were going for its closest allies in Europe, Congress finally ended its strict isolationism and passed the Lend-Lease Act in March of 1941. This allowed President Roosevelt to lend, but not to sell, war material, such as tanks, ships, and planes. Material that had not been damaged or destroyed was to be returned after the war. In return, the U.S. was given leases on many Army and naval bases in Allied territory during the war. It was felt that this didn't officially contradict the U.S.'s neutral status. It's a common belief, and one that I subscribe to, that FDR would have entered the war earlier if he could have. Presidents pursuing unpopular wars in a democracy don't last long, however. Besides, our Constitution gives the power to declare war to Congress, not the President. This clause of our Constitution has simply been disregarded since the Korean War, but at that time, it was still good law. America sat out the first couple years of the war then, but again, countries are open systems, and foreign actors or countries can change the course of intellectual movements or beliefs within a country. This gets me to one of my points about World War II. It took the Empire of Japan a few hours on the morning of December 7, 1941, to completely change the minds of Americans, from their isolationist mindsets to pro-war hawks. How did they do this so quickly? As the Industrial Revolution progressed and capitalism transformed the world into the industry-driven economies of the 18th and 19th centuries, social movements played out on increasingly massive scales. One person working a spinning jenny in an English factory could produce many, many times the amount of thread that one person hand-spinning cotton could. The same was true with steam-operated weaving looms, etc. All this led to a reduction in the price of clothing, increasing the demand for cotton from southern plantations. The rise in demand was not a small, temporary rise in demand. With the Industrial Revolution came affordable clothes for the first time in history. There were over 10 million people living in England and the colonies at the time of the American Revolution in 1776, all wanting new cotton clothing. This mass market era, brought about by the Industrial Revolution, created the demand for labor on southern cotton plantations, which, of course, led to the slave trade. An already existing, thriving international shipping industry was able to provide the ships for the inhuman transportation of slaves from Africa to the slave colonies. It's not that people suddenly became inhumane with the coming of the Industrial Revolution. There have always been more than enough people who are willing to be inhumane if it's in their best interest. It's just that, with the mass markets provided by the industrialization of the British Empire, 
it was in the self-interest of a relatively few wealthy southern plantation owners to enslave millions of workers to raise their cotton crops. And so it was with World War II. In the Middle Ages, economies didn't create huge surpluses. It's why the Hundred Years' War took so long to fight out. English kings would have to tax nobles, who didn't like being taxed, until they had enough to put an army together. Then they'd go fight with the French until their money and resources ran out, and they'd come back home until they could afford to do it again. Compared to modern wars, then, battles and casualties were limited. By World War II, the industrialized economies of the combatants were capable of producing the great surpluses required for producing the massive amounts of armaments and stationing of millions of troops continuously in the theater of war until the war was over. Then there's the never-ending arms race. The first hominin tribe that learned to throw rocks rather than just hit each other with sticks had an advantage in the fight for the best watering hole. Then the tribe that learned to affix sharpened obsidian rocks to their sticks got an advantage, and so on. But the thing is, as soon as one tribe started throwing rocks, they all did. And once one tribe started fighting with sharpened spears, so did everyone else. But humanity's perpetual search for better weapons led us, after the Industrial Revolution, to weapons that could destroy entire cities, as we showed with the firebombings of cities like Dresden and Tokyo. It wasn't until World War I that countries got together and said, we'll all continue to go to war, but there's a weapon that's so horrific we're not going to use it, and most industrialized nations agreed not to use nerve gas in war. So, the ability to place more and more soldiers in the field, mass production of ever more deadly weapons of war, and very few agreements on how we're going to use these new terrible weapons, all resulted in the 75 million deaths of World War II. Yes, 75 million deaths. Are we, as a species, becoming more barbaric? No. By World War II, Virtually all civilized nations have outlawed torture. Human sacrifice is definitely out. We finally had our last witch trial. We're almost done with lynchings. There will be a few more rare lynchings, but they won't be used as a weapon of mass terror as they were in the Jim Crow era. And after the bloodiest war in U.S. history, we, in America, finally put an end to slavery with the passage of the 13th Amendment. When you want to understand a particular historical trend, start by looking at the emotions and the motivations of the players that will be the drivers of an upcoming historical event. For the American electorate at the start of World War II, their primary desire was to stay out of what they saw as foreign wars with foreign states. Yes, there was a war in Europe, but there we had been involved in a war in Europe 20 years before and it had cost the lives of 116,000 young Americans. This was seen as a European fight, and Americans weren't eager to send their sons off to repeat the tragedies of World War I. But our brains are always attuned to identify in-groups and out-groups. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the conflict was brought home to Americans. To those of us who remember 9-11, we know how quickly someone can become a national enemy. Americans knew Japan behaved badly, 
It was being very imperialistic. It had annexed Korea in 1910, conquered Manchuria in 1931, and continued to expand what it called its Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere in one of humanity's better examples of Orwellian doublespeak. There was little prosperity that came to any nation being conquered by the Empire of Japan before World War II. The U.S. had already imposed an oil and gas embargo on Japan, but Congress had no desire to engage in armed conflict with them. But the bombing of Pearl Harbor changed all that, and four days after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declared war on the U.S. Suddenly a country that had been safely insulated from the wars that were raging in Europe and Asia was once again fully involved in a world war. Estimates of how many Americans died in World War II vary, but it was certainly over 400,000. Basically, the number of Americans killed in the war was about 72% of the entire population of Wyoming. But America got off easy. Russia lost 24 million lives in the war. China, 20 million. Germany, perhaps 8 million. Japan, around 3 million. India, somewhere between 1.5 and 2.5 million. And the list goes on. All told, 75 million people died in the conflict. That's 3% of the world's population at the time. Seriously? One war kills 3% of the entire world's population? And I'm arguing we're becoming more civilized, not more barbaric? Yep. Humans had been fighting each other with every weapon at their disposal since the beginning of humanity. But in World War II, we followed the Geneva Convention. We made the choice not to torture our enemies, allowed enemy medics full access to the battlefield wounded, and didn't use nerve gas, treated prisoners of war humanely, and followed several other guidelines set forth in the Geneva Convention that had never been the case in the history of warfare prior to the modern era. Okay, but what about Hitler? Didn't he just gratuitously kill six million Jews in his concentration camps? Aren't there estimates that Nazis murdered up to 17 million people by the end of the war, including 5.7 million Soviet citizens and 3 million Soviet POWs? Yes, he and the Nazis used torture, and the brutal treatment of Slavic people by Nazi soldiers is well documented. We could say the same thing about Japan. What about its treatment of U.S. POWs, the Bataan Death March, and the rape of Nanking? Right. This is what I've been saying all along. Progress towards being more human, toward arriving at a humanity that's more compassionate and humane, seems to be always two steps forward and one step back. And Germany and Japan fell into a category that historians have known about for a long time. Take pre-industrialized society, industrialize it, and give it a strong military. The first generation or two that's in charge of the military will have control of a modern mechanized military, but will essentially have the same pre-industrial mindset as all of the generations that came before them. Expect atrocities to be committed by these militaries and help and help the countries that are defeated by such militaries. Such atrocities don't strike pre-industrial minds as horrendous as they do us. Remember that America's death march, the Trail of Tears, occurred under Andrew Jackson during America's Industrial Revolution. 
Hitler is a particularly outrageous example. But we talked last time about how he was able to convince the Germans that he was their savior. Once he did, they could and did follow him anywhere. So we didn't torture and were more considerate with the wounded POWs. Is this what gets World War II into this podcast? No. This was important and showed that we were becoming more civilized, even as we remained stuck in the warring outgroups paradigm that's as old as humanity. The real corner was turned after the war. As horrific as the war was, it turned out to be great for the U.S. economy. With allies purchasing war materiel from the U.S., and U.S. manufacturers scaling up to produce industrial goods at full speed, we came out of the war in good shape financially. With unemployment of 10% before the war, we still weren't fully out of the Great Depression. However, with unemployment at 2% at the end of the war, the Great Depression was a distant memory. One of the big reasons for our financial success during the war was the fact that, other than the initial tax on Pearl Harbor, virtually none of the war took place on American soil. It left American industry, trade, and commerce fully intact. This was in stark contrast to Europe, where almost all countries had lost much of their industries, and their infrastructure was largely ruined, and most of the rest of their countries also lay in rubble between the bombing and artillery barrages of the war. After a couple years of post-war misery, poverty, and starvation, the American Secretary of State, George C. Marshall, devised a plan where the U.S. poured $13 billion into Europe in the form of food, fuel, machinery, and cash aid. The Marshall Plan is largely credited with allowing Europe to rebuild after the war, not to mention saving an unknown number of Europeans from starvation. And it was certainly successful, as Europe's GDP in 1952 was 35% higher than it was in 1938 before the war. Assisting its allies was certainly insightful, as the U.S. was a major beneficiary in the plan. It was largely to America that the Europeans turned to purchase all the industrial equipment they needed to rebuild their industries. A reindustrialized Europe also became a major trading partner with the U.S. But the truly revolutionary part of the Marshall Plan was that along with England, France, and the other allies, we helped rebuild Germany, our archenemy, in World War II. Really? We just lost over 400,000 American souls in defeating Germany and then turned around and provided them with billions to rebuild their country? Exactly. What we learned after World War I was that when you keep a defeated enemy poor and struggling, you only build up animosity and you'll probably end up fighting them again. What we were to learn with the Marshall Plan was that when you're generous to your enemies, they're grateful and stop being your enemies. So, when my uncle was a young man, he was in the theater of war in World War II. But by the time I was my uncle's age, Germany had become one of America's greatest allies. And Japan? Yep. We occupied Japan and went to work rebuilding their country as well. The American military occupation first went about feeding Japan. By the time it bombed Pearl Harbor, Japan had conquered a large swath of East Asia 
and was reliant on its colonies for much of its food. After the war, Japan was unable to feed itself. Next, the occupation authority threw itself into demilitarization, economic reform, social reform, and finally, reindustrialization. These attempts to reindustrialize our old enemies were very successful. Japan is now the third largest economy, and Germany the fourth. They're both among our closest allies. What I've been looking for in this podcast is a decrease in our reactive aggression toward outgroups. World War I didn't make it into this podcast because after a total of 20 million killed in that war, the Allied response was to impose crushing war reparations on Germany and to force them to pay far more than they could afford. This led countless Germans to live for over a decade in poverty and misery. The U.S. gets some credit for wanting to ease these reparations when it was clear how brutal they were. But we were outvoted by our allies, and the victorious allies continued to force millions of Germans to live in poverty. Ever since Adam and Eve's tribe threw rocks and stabbed their neighboring tribes with spears in order to keep them away from their watering hole, humans have divided themselves into warring groups and gave full vent to their reactive aggression by going to war with each other. When it was all over, each side typically viewed their enemies with more hate and contempt than ever. Humanity's never-ending arms race and the ability to create deadlier and deadlier weapons led to deadlier and deadlier wars until, by the end of World War I, we had extinguished 20 million souls. Still, we didn't get it. Germans were as much the enemy as ever, and we, the Allies, imposed a treaty on Germany that condemned them to national poverty, at least for the foreseeable future, and required them to admit responsibility for the war. In reviewing the Treaty of Versailles that ended the war, Marshal Ferdinand Falk, the supreme Allied commander in World War I, said, This is not a peace. It's an armistice for 20 years. Twenty years and 65 days later, World War II broke out. Despite the worldwide depression, the world's major powers had put this time to good use. The weapons of war used in World War II were much more deadly than the weapons used in World War I, and the cost of not learning our lesson at the end of World War I was that 75 million human souls would be lost in World War II. This time, however, after sacrificing another 75 million young souls. We finally learned a lesson that humanity had been groping for all these millennia. If you stop treating outgroups as enemies, they stop being enemies. Not only did we not treat them as enemies, we helped to rebuild their economies that we had largely destroyed during the war. With the Marshall Plan and the Japanese occupation and reconstruction, Humanity turned a major corner in its ongoing journey to becoming more human. Now, for the first time, enemies weren't enemies. They were future allies that needed a hand up. Though there may have been yet another agenda we had for reforming our enemies, 
We'll get into that next time. At any rate, it worked. I'm old enough that I had an uncle several years older than my mother who served in World War II. Yet I grew up recognizing Germany as one of America's main allies. When I went to college, I studied for a semester in Japan. Finally, after 200,000 years, we learned a fundamental lesson of being human. When you treat outgroups as in-groups, they respond in kind and treat you as in-groups. What would we do with this new knowledge? Stay tuned. Your reading this week is D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II, by Stephen Ambrose. As we're spending our time in this podcast analyzing the turning points in history that brought us to our current climate crisis, we're missing all the amazing stories that comprise the step-by-step process of history. Stephen Ambrose is a master at telling this kind of story. D-Day was just one day in American history, but there are so many stories of bravery among the young Americans that walked onto the beaches of France that day. I think there's something in Ambrose's telling of the story that shows how Americans can rise to an overwhelming challenge when called to. Enjoy. See you next week.